We live in a time of tremendous opportunity for innovators, entrepreneurs, and those with skill and imagination. But it seems at every turn, there are forces that slow us down or get us off track. I believe you can trigger your independence and lead a flourishing life, be free to choose, and live according to your own values. Join us in a conversation about big ideas in life, liberty, and the pursuit of your happiness. Welcome to The John Riley Project. Hey everybody, how you doing? And welcome to another great podcast. Here we are on the John Riley Project. It's Wednesday, August 18th. And boy, we're going to get into a lot of great stuff today. We're going to talk about the Afghanistan withdrawal, uh, which is obviously a huge topic in the news. We're going to break some of that down. We're going to talk about personal independence, which is a, it's a kind of a, a little bit of a self-improvement topic, but there's a little bit of connection with the idea of personal independence with what's happening in Afghanistan. And I don't mean political independence. I mean personal independence. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that in today's episode. I'm going to follow up on a couple of topics from last week's episode about the California recall. We're going to talk also a little bit. You know, there's been a couple of interesting updates here in my hometown of Poway. I'll give some updates there. And we're going to be having a, a giveaway. I'm going to be giving away some shirts. So uh, stay tuned for news on that later in this podcast episode. Um, so, you know, we're, we're always live streaming this. We're, we normally do this at two o'clock, getting a little bit of a late start today, just when I'm very busy with some of my customers. Uh, but, you know, for many of you, I know you listen to the recorded version or sometimes you watch the recorded version. So we get off to a little bit of a late start. It's really only impacting my live stream audience. But, you know, we normally do this once a week now. We're doing it once a week, Wednesdays at 2 o'clock. And we welcome your thoughts and comments. You know, I've downsized it to once a week just so I can really, I think I can make these podcast episodes better. And at the same time, I think I can give myself some breathing room to go out and promote the podcast to a greater degree to help build the audience. I, I was cranking out like three episodes a week, which was a ton of fun, but... That's a lot of effort. So I'm happy I'm kind of downsizing to one a week and I may go back up to two or three a week in the future. Uh, but, you know, we always do these as a live stream. That means that your thoughts and comments are welcome, you know, especially, you know, if you're local uh, here in our audience, whether you're in San Diego County in California or maybe even from our local community, maybe you live in Poway or Rancho Bernardo. I know a great deal of our audience is here locally. So this is a, your chance to sound off on these topics, you know, especially on the Afghanistan war, there's been the, with this withdrawal, there's just been so many thoughts and comments and different opinions. And so I welcome your thoughts. So on the live stream, feel free to type those in, in Facebook or YouTube, and I'll be happy to read them on the air. Okay. So let's get into this Afghanistan withdrawal piece. And, you know, it's just been all over the news. We've been seeing, you've been seeing the pictures of people like, you know, in Kabul running to the airport, people that have been, you know, gathering all their luggage, fleeing the nation, people running alongside, you know, U.S. military aircraft, people that have jumped onto the landing gear and the airplane takes off and then these people are falling out of the sky. I mean, it's been awful, but just massive chaos that's going on in Afghanistan right now. 
now. And this has led to a lot of people to really been seriously criticize President Biden on how this is all unfolding. But I got to tell you, you know, again, I'm no Joe Biden fan, um, but I am I, I can't tell you how appreciative I am of what he's doing to get us out of this 20-year war. And I think this is ultimately a good thing. And sure, it's messy. But I kind of want to go through his speech that he gave a couple of days ago, which I thought was a very good speech. Um, Now, granted, he was, you know, I guess he's been in Camp David. Maybe he's been vacationing. So he has not been available or been as public as I would have hoped him to be over the weekend. But he finally made his appearance on Monday. So I'm going to just break down elements of his speech. I think these provide some interesting jumping off points to comment. So again, I welcome your thoughts and comments on the live stream. Feel free to chime in. So one one of the first things President Biden said was, I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. And he's absolutely right. I mean, first of all, you know, there never is a good time, right? I mean, we could we could have left five years ago. We could have left, you know, in the future. And there would always be this vacuum. That's always been the criticism. Like if you leave, then we heard this with Iraq too. If you if we leave Iraq, then a vacuum is going to be developed, and the other other you know forces will take over power in those areas. Well, that's true, but that's going to happen no matter when we withdraw. Um, you know, and, and that's no justification for us to stay there for multiple generations. We're already twenty years into this thing, so. Um, you know, a lot of times I think a lot of these these leaders, they want to stay in these these, uh, you know, unwinnable wars because they don't want to admit failure. They want to save face and they're hoping that they can pull a miracle um, out of their you know what and save the day. And it just never it, it ultimately becomes unwinnable, particularly with the strategy that they use when they go about it. And we're going to kind of break that down. But, you know, 20 years, I mean, how much has been spent? I've heard over a trillion. Some people have said two trillion, although that seems like a stretch. But I mean, there's been a ton of money and how many lost lives. And then to see it all just sort of evaporate in the last couple of weeks, or especially in the last few days, just kind of shows the pointlessness of a lot of this. Um, And, you know, good on Biden for not wanting to continue to dig the hole. That's, you know, one of the, the classic rules, right? What's the first thing you do when you're in your when you're in a hole is you stop digging. And so he is finally embracing reality and admitting it's time to get out of these wards. And, and, you know, from my own perspective, you know, I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat, but I have been very outspoken against a lot of these policies, you know, because we're basically like the world's police and we're running all these wars all around the world. Many cases, unwinnable wars, expensive wars, costing the loss of lives of not just military combatants, but of innocent lives. I mean, think about all the drones that have been dropped on innocent people. It's just been insane what's been happening in these other nations. So I can't tell you how happy I am that Biden really kind of stepped up to the plate and took responsibility and finally is getting them out. So, you know, good on you, Biden. I mean, really, if you go back in time, I mean, has there been a decision by any president on any issue where I've really felt proud of a president in the last 20 or 30 years? Honestly, I can't think of a moment 
that tops this. And granted, this is a pretty low, uh, a low bar to clear, but still, this is incredible that, that, that he actually did this. Because, you know, we've heard talk from other presidents that they were, were going to do this, but they never did. So going on in his speech, and again, I welcome your thoughts. Type them in on Facebook or YouTube. I'll read them on the air. Um, President Biden went on to say, I always promise the American people that I will be straight with you. The truth is this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed, sometimes without trying to fight. And yeah, you know, he's right. And we, you know, we can condemn Biden for the chaos that that enveloped. I mean, certainly when military leaders were saying that they had 300,000 Afghanis ready to fight the good fight, well, they were clearly lying um, or completely misread the situation or had terrible intelligence. I mean, we can point the finger at a lot of other military leaders. We can point the finger at the Afghans and their unwillingness to fight. And Biden is doing some of this, but he is ultimately taking the ultimate responsibility as the commander in chief. And and again, I give him credit for that. Um, it's hard to believe that I'm crediting him. I mean, I did not support him at all in the election, but I think what he's doing is the right thing. And really, you know, knowing what we know about what's been going on in Afghanistan over the last, oh, my God, 20 years. I mean, do you really expect that it would have been an orderly, well or uh, organized, well planned withdrawal? I mean, you knew that it was going to end up with some form of chaos, probably crazy chaos. And that's kind of what we got. I mean, if you had expectations that were any different, you know, maybe you should check your assumptions. I mean, because I mean, it's almost like remember when, when right after the Beirut bombings, President Reagan said, you know, you just can't deal with the irrationality of what happens in the Middle East. And there's a lot of that in that particular seg- sector of the of the world. So, again, good on you, Biden, for getting out. Um, President Biden went on to say. So I'm left again to ask of those who argue that we should stay. How many more generations of America's daughters and sons would you have me send to fight Afghans? Afghanistan's civil war when Afghan to fight in Afghanistan's civil war when Afghans themselves will not fight in their own war. How many more lives, American lives, is it worth? How many endless rows of headstones at Arlington National Cemetery? (laughs) Again, good on you, um, you know, Joe Biden, for for putting it in this context. I mean, this is kind of one of the major flaws of this whole argument is why why are American soldiers here fighting in Iraq? I mean, fighting in Afghanistan to defend Afghanistan. The Afghanis are the ones that need to be defending their country, not us, not the United States. Um, now, you know, they've been fighting in this ground war for like 20 years. Now, ideally, what should have happened, and it's easy to armchair quarterback it now, right? I'm sure we're all kind of doing that to a degree. But, you know, back then when this all went down with 9-11 and, you know, tragic situation with 9-11. Everyone was just so pent up and they wanted revenge and they wanted to punch back someone, anyone. But in this case, they went after the Taliban. And, you know, did the Taliban harbor Al-Qaeda? Yeah, they did. 
did the Taliban, were they um, asked to turn over Osama bin Laden um, and al-Qaeda leaders and they refused? Yeah, that happened. But really, the primary focus should have been on al-Qaeda and on Osama bin Laden, not on a, a supporting organization like the Taliban. But we made it, you know, our effort to, we had to fight back. We had to get back to someone. And in this case, it was the Taliban. I mean, the right answer back then, you know, initially when they approved the war, you remember Congress voted. It was almost unanimous, by the way, um, where I think there were no no votes in the Senate. I think it was 98 to zero to two. There were two that didn't vote. And in the House of Representatives, there was only one person that voted no. I think it was, what was her name? Barbara, is it Barbara Cox? Um, she was a congresswoman, I think from California, was the only person that voted no on this. I mean, it was near unanimous support. But in the beginning, you know, they were just sending in targeted airstrikes. And I mean, that made sense to me. And, you know, eventually, you know, they, they went in and and they got Osama bin Laden. But to me, having a more precise, more targeted approach to this is really the right way to do it. You know, an airstrike, um, you know, a few months after we went and invaded, we had such heavy airstrikes, we should have just declared victory and came home after a couple of months. Um, And then God forbid, if we stayed, you know, another 10 years, we eventually got Osama bin Laden. When was that? In 20, I think it was 2011. I remember we were here at my house in my backyard, and we were hosting a meeting uh, for the the board for the Poway National Little League. And on the TV came news that they got Osama bin Laden. So I'm thinking in my head, that was probably 2011. And I was here with about, you know, eight or 10 other people, all members of my local community. We were all the ones that were running the Little League at the time. That was 10 years later. I mean, you would think at least then they could have declared victory and came home, but they didn't. Um, They just kept going after it. Um, So Biden finally pulled the plug. So Biden goes on to say, I made a commitment to the brave men and women who serve this nation that I wasn't going to ask them to continue to risk their lives in a military action that should have ended long ago. Our leaders did that in Vietnam when I got here as a young man, and I will not do it in Afghanistan. Well, do you see the pictures of the the the. um what do they call them? I, sh- I should go back to my uh, visit to the helicopter museum of the of those helicopters with the dueling props on top. And remember, we saw the picture of, of it landing on the embassy in Afghanistan. And then there was a similar photo of that landing on the embassy in Saigon. So there are certain parallels here with the Vietnam War. Um, but Biden said, you know, I made a commitment that I'm not going to continue this. And again, good on you, President Biden, for doing this. And I know he's caught a lot of crap in this whole thing. Uh, you know, some people think he was blaming the Afghanis, but he was because there's plenty of blame to go around. But at least he's accepting reality and understanding what really needs to be done and understanding really what's in the best interest of the United States. And I give him credit for that. Um, But in many ways, I mean, you know, we jump to, I say we, the collective we, I mean, you know, government, national leaders, we jump to wanting to fight back, wanting to punch back, you know, that we had that aggression after 9-11 and we were angry. Of course, we were angry. I mean, it was a brutal attack on 9-11. 
But in, in many ways, it was just a mismatch of philosophy. And that's what I want to kind of break down here a bit because, it, I mean, we were going into this completely upside down from a philosophical perspective. I mean, first of all, we have American soldiers that are going into Afghanistan that are sacrificing their lives, many of which died. I mean, how many American soldiers died in Afghanistan? I mean, I know it's a four-digit number, right? It's over a 1,000. Um, how many of them died and, and for what? I mean, what they were in the beginning, you know, certainly it was to punch back. But very soon this turned into a nation-building exercise. And what they were really doing was fighting a battle to really prop up a foreign government. They were doing it to you know, build security for the Afghani government. And is that really, should that really be the role of American soldiers, particularly should they be sacrificing their lives, putting their lives at risk, not to defend America, but to defend Afghanistan, to defend the government and the ruling class of Afghanistan? Because that's what they were doing. That's why, again, a very flawed philosophical angle to this. And then on top of it, American taxpayers were funding this, N not just the, the funding for the war effort, but American taxpayers were funding the construction of infrastructure throughout Afghanistan for roads and bridges and schools and hospitals while, while we're failing to take care of that same infrastructure in the United States. So American taxpayers are sacrificing so the Afghanis could benefit. The whole thing was just completely distorted philosophically. It was just the wrong approach in so many different ways. And Biden finally made the commitment to pull the plug on this, this nonsense. It's 20 years, but my God, it's amazing. It's lasted 20. But if we had other leaders in there, it may have lasted another 20. I mean, how long have we been in Korea? How long have we been in Japan? How long have we been in Germany? And we have American bases all around the world. Um, some are still fighting. Some are on standby. Some are at the DMZ with their guns pointed north. I mean, so... It's incredible, like our military, how involved we are all around the world. And for what? You know, are they are they really defending America or are they really defending these other nations? And then why are American taxpayers footing the bill? Why are American soldiers putting their lives on the line for this? Um President Biden went on to say, and again, I encourage your thoughts and comments. Feel free to type them in on Facebook and YouTube, and I'll be happy to read your questions and comments on the air. We can have a little conversation about this. I mean, after all, this is a public forum. That's what this podcast is all about. Um, President Biden went on to say, I know my decision will be criticized. And boy, has it been criticized. Um, but I would rather take all of that criticism then pass this decision on to another president of the United States, yet another one, a fifth one. So this kind of goes to the point, like who's to blame for all this? You know, we all want to point a finger. And really, you see Republicans, they're blaming Biden um, or they may have, you know, Republicans may be blaming Obama. And of course, the opposite is true. The Democrats, they'll blame Bush or they'll blame Trump on this whole thing. Um, but if you're looking at this objectively, really, all of the above are to blame for this. And it's not a Republican versus Democrat blame game. Um, actually, that's how it's being played out. But ultimately, 
Um, <laughs> Pete Neal on the live stream says, I finally made it. Three phone calls later. I'm live with JRP. Pete, nice to see you on the podcast. I know you've had some family in town and now you're available to engage with us in our community. And Pete, as a, as a veteran, I'm at, at not myself as a veteran, Pete, at, you are a veteran. I'm interested in your thoughts and comments on this topic. But there's plenty of blame to go around here, folks. I mean, certainly you can point the finger at Bush. I mean, Bush was the one that was the president when this started. Now, granted, Bush went into this with almost perfect um, bipartisan support. Remember, there's only one no vote in both chambers of Congress to go to war against Afghanistan. Um Matthew Brannigan on the live stream. I, I hopped in a bit late, too. Well, you know what? I hopped in late. I didn't start until about three o'clock. So, again, gentlemen, thanks for being on here with us. And we welcome your thoughts and comments. Um, you know, and, and again, I, I criticized Bush when he went in initially because, first of all, we were going after the Taliban rather rather than Al Qaeda and ultimately Osama bin Laden. Um, and then, you know, it turned it went from airstrikes to suddenly became a ground war. That, you know, that became pretty clear that it was going to be an unwinnable event. Um, but then President Obama comes into office. President Obama, I remember when he was running for office in the 2008 election, you know, he condemned the Iraq war. He said that was the I don't know if he said these exact words, but he framed it as the Iraq war was the bad war. But the Afghan Afghanistan war was the good war. And in fact, as Obama reduced troops in Afghanistan, in Iraq, pardon me, as troops were reduced in Iraq, he redirected so many of them to Afghanistan. Shortly after he was elected, there was the Afghan surge. We had a huge, massive expansion of troops in Afghanistan, way more money being spent in Afghanistan. I mean, Trump may excuse me, Obama made a bad situation, in my opinion, Worse, um, and he kept trying to save face. He kept trying to find a way to win an unwinnable war. Matthew Brannigan says, "Whether we left in 2011 or we left in 2031, the same thing would sadly happen." Matthew, you're exactly right, and we commented on that earlier. There's so much chaos. It's bound to be chaotic whenever we leave, and it doesn't matter if we leave in 2011 or 2031 or whenever, there will be a vacuum. It doesn't matter. There will be a vacuum, and when we leave and some other force will come in, and we can try to prop up, you know, this 300,000 300,000, troops of an Afghan army, but if they don't have a will to fight, Frankly, if they don't have the right philosophical perspective on this whole thing, it's bound to fail. And that's what happened. But, you know, Biden cut his losses and I give him credit for it. You know, and then Trump runs for office. And remember, in 2016 election, he said he was going to end these these endless wars. Right. And we heard that over and over again. But Trump really didn't start trying to end the endless wars until the very, very end of his presidential term. Um, in fact, very early on in his uh, his term as president, remember he dropped the Moab, M-O-A-B, the mother of all bombs, which was, as far as I know, the, the most impactful military weapon we have just short of a nuclear warhead. And that was dropped in Afghanistan, you know, in the 
the rural area of Afghanistan, I think the attempt was was to crush a lot of these tunnels and caves where you know some of the the, the Taliban forces were. But did it really make much of a difference? Not really. It didn't. Um, it was just more of doubling down and tripling down on a bad idea. Pete kneeled on the live stream, chiming in. From my perspective, I am focusing on something that has been stuck in my mind since the beginning of the Afghan war. We did not learn a very valuable lesson. I thought we learned from Vietnam. Pete, man, I agree with you 100%. You know, we go into these foreign wars and, you know, it's one thing if, you know, we're bombed in Pearl Harbor and we go back to defend our our nation. In this case, we were bombed, obviously, with 9-11, in a more, certainly in a more creative way. Um, but the response should have been well thought out. The response should have been, let's not get into another Vietnam. I remember when we sent forces into Iraq in Gulf War One in the early 1990s, people feared it would be another Vietnam because that was so that was so vivid in, in our in our memory about how terrible of a situation that was. Um, but you're right, Pete, we, we, as a nation, we didn't learn this lesson, but then it makes you wonder what are the decision-making of the people in charge? Why did they pursue these things? I mean, they're smart enough. (laughs) They know what happened in Vietnam. Did they think that they were smarter and think that they could do this and actually emerge victorious? Or did they think they wanted to do this because they know that it would have enhanced their power as political leaders in America or this is the Cheney angle to this whole thing. Um, did they see an opportunity to, to prosper from this by rebuilding these nations, by having American companies like Halliburton go in and rebuild them? So it makes you wonder really what was going on behind the curtain. But on the surface, it doesn't appear that we've learned our lesson. But people tend to want to be all gung-ho. They I think people watch too many uh, too many movies, you know, where the heroes go in and conquer and they come out, you know, fresh faced and with beautiful women and, and, and big victory parties. And, you know, war is not like that. It's a lot harder. So anyways, yeah, so Trump dropped the Moab, right? And that was pointless. That didn't really work. And he kind of kept it going in in Afghanistan. I mean, Trump dramatically expanded the drone war. I mean, Bush started the drone war, then Obama expanded it, and then Trump expanded it even more. And the drone war not only was in Afghanistan, but it was in Iraq and Syria and, and Yemen and even parts of Africa. But they just kept doubling down. And I, it makes you wonder, like, you know, Trump talked a good game, at least in this particular category of ending the endless wars. But once he gets into office, he flipped, as so many politicians do. Did did he suddenly get in military intelligence that only he heard and we don't know that information that caused him to flip? Or did he see it as an opportunity to be the strong man, the tough guy? Maybe. I don't know. But it certainly wasn't solved on his watch. Then apparently... Um, Pete Neal says, uh, thanks, the Eisenhower warning, um, or that's the Eisenhower warning. Um, yeah, the military industrial complex warning, right? Wasn't that in Dwight Eisenhower's um, speech when he stepped down as president is to beware 
of the military industrial complex who will want to keep endless wars going because that's what props up their power and and fattens their their pocketbook. And yeah, there's a lot to be said with this. Now, granted, here we we're here we are in San Diego County where there's a lot of defense contractors and a large military presence. I mean, I'm not going to be naive to say that this sort of thing doesn't help our local economy, but by no means would I ever justify what's going on in Afghanistan or Iraq, you know, just because it helps our economy. But I will say that there's definitely people that are benefiting it from here, regular people, not necessarily these um, people twirling their mustache, you know, up in the ivory tower. But regular folks are benefiting from this here in San Diego, which is kind of sad, but it's the reality that we live in. But, you know, then Biden himself, he first of all, Biden voted for the war. Biden voted for the Afghan. Well, everyone except one person voted for the Afghanistan war. I mean, back then, everyone was such it was in such a a fervor, you know, that they wanted to punch back. A politician would would be a great danger at huge risk to vote no. Um, But then, you know, Biden also knew that he was going to run for president again. And and that's why I think he voted for the Iraq war, too, you know. Biden did. John Edwards, you know, the guy with the $250 haircut, VP nominee, he voted for the Iraq war. Of course, Hillary Clinton voted for the Iraq war. Um, What's the guy's name? His last name was Dodd. Um, And he was a presidential candidate, I think, in 04 or 08. Um, And he he, um, voted for the Iraq war. So he, there were a number of Democrats that voted for the Iraq war. Biden was one of them. And of course, Biden voted for the Afghanistan war. Um, and then Biden had an opportunity to follow through on Trump's plan to remove the troops by the beginning of May. And he chose to extend it. Now, some might say he wanted to have a more orderly withdrawal, and that's why he wanted to extend it. Um, but clearly that didn't work. I mean, that wasn't the end result. Now, again, I'm not trying to defend Trump. I'm no fan of Trump. Um, But Biden extended the war even further when he got into office. And then, you know, we saw the whole collapse, which, again, makes me wonder, were we being lied to when they said that the Afghan military would be able to step up? I mean, after all, there were 300,000 of them and only 75,000 Taliban. Were we being lied to? Like that, that, did they really know all along that they were going to fold? Or was this really a legitimate surprise? I don't know. But clearly someone had an error in judgment or blatantly lied to our faces. But eventually, you know, he pulled the plug on this, which is good. Now, President Biden went on to say, as we carry out this departure, we have made it clear to the Taliban, if they attack our personnel or disrupt our operation, the United States, um, uh, the U.S. presence uh, will be swift and the response will be swift and forceful. We will defend our people with devastating force if necessary. Now, this should have been our approach from the beginning is that and this really, in my opinion, if you have a a foreign policy that's built on national defense, not offense, but defense, not world police, but defense of the United States, then this should be your approach that if if you get punched, then you punch back. 
Okay. It's impactful. It's swift. It's clean. It's extremely impactful. And then boom, boom, you're out. You don't turn it into a ground war. You don't turn it in to a nation building exercise that goes for 20 years and costs a trillion dollars and God knows how many more lives. That's what we should have done. Again, easy to armchair quarterback it now, but it should have been obvious back then in 01. I mean, you know, as this, this, this war just dragged on and on. And then when we jumped into Iraq, a lot of people lost focus of what was going on in Afghanistan. Oh, oh yeah, there's another war, you know. Um, we, we lost focus. But yet the military industrial complex keeps the thing rolling. Matthew Brannigan says, Trump starting the process of withdrawal and admitting it would be a mess was a rare bit of wisdom from him. Odd that he's backing away from it now and pretending he didn't say it. Well, Trump and wisdom don't usually go in the same sense. Um, but Trump, if if Trump was truly wise, he would have begun with the withdrawal immediately in 2016. Not dropping Moabs, not trying to continue to fight an unwinnable war. He would have done what Biden's doing now. But he waited and waited, and then it got near the election, and then he finally figured he needed to step up because a lot of his base wanted to end the unwinnable wars. But of course, this whole thing gets politicized. People see it through the red versus blue prism. And now that Biden's doing it, Trump criticizes him. And that's the same thing with a lot of the Trump followers, which I'm going to get to in a minute when we talk about personal independence. Uh, yeah, that's something. It's the way this is politicized, and people— um, politicians, for sure. It's like they lack core principles. They just make comments like this on, in terms of how do I make the other guy look bad? It doesn't matter how inconsistent you are. And of course, Trump is the king of that. Um, Pete Neal on the live stream says, ah, that's the big mystery. 20,000 Afghans who worked with us and none of them warned us that their government would fail. Essentially, a paper government. Well, you know, it, the Taliban have been in power in Afghanistan since the 1990s. That's like, you know, 25 years. Remember when the Afghans took over? I think this was before 9-11. Remember they blew up that ancient artifact? It was uh, like these statues that were built into a, a, um, a rock wall. There's a, there's a really famous spot is it in Syria where there's a temple it was in the one of the um Indiana Jones movies but there was an incredible amount of destruction on it by the hands of the Taliban as they went in and blew up a lot of the culture of Afghanistan the point being is that afghanis have known nothing but war for like 20 25 years that's a whole generation of people did the did the the 20,000 afghans that were working with us were they able to predict what was going to happen? It was probably, maybe they were hopeful. I would imagine the ones that were helping us were hopeful that they would regain power of their nation, but they may have been delirious. They may have underestimated how much the Taliban had over the so-called uh, silent majority. <laughs> they knew that those guys would fold, and they did. Pete Neal says, yes, that was during the Russian tenure issue. <laughs> um it's, 
it's a shame. I mean, the people in Afghanistan are suffering from this. And, you know, the people that have helped us, by the way, this is a little bit of a tangent, but the people that have helped the Americans, whether they were translators or other people that did tasks to help the American press or the American military, Afghanis, a lot of them are being abandoned. They're being left, you know, they're hung out to dry in Kabul. Um, a lot of t- cases, you know, not only are they not able to get on an airplane to get to the United States. I mean, in my opinion, they should all be, what's the word, refugees or asylum. I always get those confused. But they should be able to come to the United States and just be instantly legal citizens. Or not, if not legal citizens, excuse me, they should be legal, you know, green card. They should be legal residents. I mean, this should be a no-brainer. Now, granted, there's all this chaos to get them out, but it, it's terrible that we're letting a lot of these people hung out to dry. I mean, this is how we are going to continue to erode the brand image of the United States of America. People aren't going to want to help us if we have a reputation of screwing people over. And that's what's happening here. Um, President Biden went on to say in his speech, The events we're seeing now are sadly proof that no amount of military force would ever deliver a stable, united, secure Afghanistan that is known in history as the graveyard of empires. What's happening now could have easily happened five years ago or 15 years in the future. And Matthew Brannigan, that was exactly your point. But still, we hear these comments about the graveyard of nations, right? You know, Alexander the Great went into Afghanistan and failed. The British went into Afghanistan and failed in the 19th century. In the 20th century, it was very famous. Remember, the Russians went in and invaded. That's why the Americans ended up boycotting the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow because of the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. They failed as well. And now we have failed. You could see the writing on the wall. The historians should have been banging on Bush. Don't go in. Should have been telling Obama, get the hell out. Telling Trump, get the hell out. Finally, Biden's doing it. Knowing what we know of Afghanistan as the graveyard of empires, why in the hell did they stay? Why? Matthew Brannigan says, Afghanistan isn't even a real country. <laughs> the borders were drawn up by the British 100 years ago. Well, I think a lot of those nations in Central Asia are like that. You know, Iran, Iraq, Syria, those are all lines drawn, I think, right after World War I. Um, so is it a nation, you know, sort of, kind of, it's this loose, this loose um, corral of – Various tribes, various small groups, some with more power than others. Um, but yeah, the, the, again, a philosophical mismatch when going in on this because here the notion what Bush and Obama and Trump all wanted to do was to build a nation. You could say Trump didn't want to do it, but his actions say differently. He continued the nation building exercises well into the two, three years of his term. Of course, Obama and Bush certainly did, building out the infrastructure of schools and hospitals and roads and bridges, water systems, things we won't even build in America. They were building them in Afghanistan. I remember Rand Paul one time was talking about how they were building a 
60, I think it was $65 million for a natural gas gas station in Afghanistan. And he was saying, well, not only was this an example of building infrastructure in Afghanistan, but it was for a natural gas gas station when there were so few vehicles that are powered by natural gas. It was almost like a clean energy idea put in Afghanistan. And then eventually it got blown up by the Taliban in another war or another conflict. But that's the thing is that the ideas of Western democracy – just are not of value to most of the people of Afghanistan. They don't recognize the value in it. Um, They don't recognize the whole concept of we the people, of self-rule. Because all they've ever really known, except for some very brief moments in their history, have been some form of monarch, some religious leader, some um, dictator of some sort. I know there have been moments where there's been some... Western culture that has been a part of Afghanistan, just like we had some of that in Iran back in the the days before the Iranian revolution. But those were the exceptions to the rule. I think in many ways, Afghanis, especially after 25 years of war, they just don't understand or value American democracy, yet we were trying to push it in. We were trying to force it in. They also don't value Western culture. And that's pretty obvious in terms of how women's rights are the classic example of how women are um, you know, treated not only as second-class citizens, like a third-class citizen. They lack basic rights, human rights. Um, and that's what's well-documented. Some of the women try to protest, they die. Other women find ways to rationalize it as as acceptable within the scope of their religion. Men, some men are brutal um, oppressors of these women. Other men go along with it. They accept it as a reality of their culture. They don't value Western culture. Yet we kept trying to force feed this in like a square peg into a round hole. When they don't really value what we value. And this was the philosophical mismatch. Matthew Brannigan said, they've lost their jobs, have been told to go home. Yeah, a lot of the women have. Because America was trying to, you know, prop up women's rights, and that sounds wonderful. But, I mean, you're basically building that on a, on a shaky foundation, a place where women's rights are not respected. And, yeah, a lot of them that are sent home. I mean, a lot of these women were, were skilled professionals. <laughs> Who have they been replaced with? I saw a bit on, I think it was Stephen Colbert was doing this in one of his opening monologues. And he said, you imagine there's a woman, he's a surgeon and sorry, uh, sorry, you've been replaced. You're out. We don't care that you're a skilled surgeon. You're going to be replaced by this other guy. I don't know what his medical background is, but he's a man. <laughs> so as a patient, you should feel better. Um, Yeah, just a lot of that kind of nonsense. Um, Now, Biden went on to say, now we are focused on what is possible. We will continue to support the Afghan people. We will lead with our diplomacy, our international influence and humanitarian aid. We will continue to speak out for the basic rights of the Afghan people, for women and girls, just as we speak out all over the world. 
Now, now he's starting to make sense as far as a go forward policy. I mean, this is kind of talking about the notion of individual rights. Um, and we stand for well, we claim to stand for individual rights. And what I mean by that is our inalienable rights of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, that we are individuals that are entitled to be able to manage our life, make choices about our own life, to live our life according to our own values. Those are the that's what America was founded on. Now, granted, there's been a horrible, flawed implementation of those ideals. I mean, we can talk about our own oppression of women in America and slavery and like a lot of sins in, in our nation's past. But ultimately, Biden is he's looking forward. He's re-embracing those ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We, we can attempt to protect those rights in America, but we don't have the ability to effectively protect them in other nations that are beyond the scope of our footprint, because that's asking us to be the world police. And we already know that that's a failed policy. A couple more comments here from Matthew Brannigan. One thing I've noticed from South Asian Middle Eastern refugees from war is that they tend to be all men. Men are fine in these countries. We should just accept women refugees as many as we can. And of course, the children, the children, um, they have all the skills America needs. Well, I agree. It should be a no brainer to extend you know, legal residency and then give them an opportunity to become American citizens. That should be the easiest thing in the world to do. But that's a problem because either A, our government makes our immigration policy so screwed up, so difficult, so problematic. I mean, that's why we have people at our southern border that are still being detained. They're not in Obama's cages, but they're in cells under the, um, you know, under the Biden administration. And we saw that, you know, the cages that were built by Obama and used by Trump. Our immigration policy is awful. If we really supported liberty, we supported freedom like we claim to, immigration would be easy, fast, inexpensive. You want to be a legal immigrant? Oh, no worries. You fill out a form, sign here. We welcome you to America. We encourage you to assimilate. And by the way, we have a ton of unfilled jobs. <laughs> Would you please take them? And then you can support yourself. Now, citizenship, on the other hand, should be difficult. But just being able to come here and work and do it legally, not live in the shadows, should be easy. But we got... Not only do we have a flawed immigration policy, but we got a lot of people in America that don't want them. They're on foreigners coming in. You know, whether they're bigots or racists or I don't know, whatever it is, there's a lot of people that don't want them in. And then we see all kinds of inconsistency depending on what nation they're from. Then we want them or we don't want them or what color they are. We want them. We don't want them. I mean, if we really embrace liberty, we should be letting these people in and particularly with these Afghanis. The ones that helped Americans, come on in. You're the ones that are helping us. Let us help you. Win-win. And then certainly for a lot of these women that have been oppressed, if they can find a way to get to America, if they can find a way to get on an airplane in Kabul, we should welcome them into the United States to escape the oppression in their own country. And especially if they're skilled, that would be a double win. You know, come on down. So, yeah, it's something. I agree with you, Matthew. Um, 
So we can't be the world's police. We know, I mean, we would love to be a superhero, Captain America, to go around the world fighting for oppressed women and for the children. We must save the children all around the world. It sounds good. It sounds like a Hollywood movie. It's just not realistic, especially in these nations where they don't embrace the same philosophy. They don't have the same values that we have in America. We can't, I mean, we need to go out there and try to persuade people. We can go out and share the news. We can, we can speak out about what we believe, but more importantly, we need to practice what we believe. Rather than going out and talking about how we support women's rights, we need to demonstrate it in the United States. If we want to be this shining city on a hill that President Reagan claimed to be, claimed the U.S. should be, then we should live our values. And then attract people to America that want to share in that same ideal with us. Doesn't matter what gender, what race, what, you know, what religion. Come on down. You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. We welcome you. Matthew Brannigan says, my citizenship was expensive and time consuming, but it was worth it. Hey, good on you, Matthew. I didn't know that. Um, again, you and I, we've talked many times on the podcast. I've never met you in real life, but, uh, well, in person. This is real life, but I haven't met you in person. What, what nation did you come from? Uh, but good on you for becoming an American citizen. Right on. And yeah, it is ex- expensive, really? Uh, that's interesting to me. I would expect being a citizenship, citizenship would be time-consuming. I get that. I get that it could potentially be difficult, but I didn't know it was expensive. Uh, if you can help me understand that, that'd be great. Um, oh, you're English, so you're from England. Okay, well, right on. Welcome, <laughs> welcome, fellow American. Uh, good on you. Uh, Pete Neal says, think about this. There are some Americans that don't buy into women's rights. Well, we have a new country. Where would they get, where would they get along? Well, you're right. But see, this is the hypocrisy of America. That we have people that love to talk about these ideas of what makes America special, but they don't live it. They talk about um, not just life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, but all men are created equal and, you know, freedom, America, but not freedom for them, just freedom for me and people like me, but not freedom for them. That's the, that's the thing I've always commented on is when I see Trump supporters and they're carrying a flag and they're a sign that says freedom sounds great. But a lot of times they don't want freedom for everyone. They want, they don't want it. They want to keep immigrants in the blocked at the Southern border. They want a wall. They want to revoke travel visas, revoke student visas. Trump did that. Trump claimed he was for legal immigration. He just opposed the illegal kind. That's not true. He opposed both. Um, so I know I've always says I always say the other guy has rights too. And that's the beauty of, of this whole idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It isn't so much that I have it, it's that everyone else has it. Because that I can't just do whatever I want with my own freedom because I can't violate the freedom of everyone else. I can't violate the rights of everyone else. And that's what it should be. 
That's the idea, the way we should think of it. Matthew Brannigan says, been in the United States for 18 years. Wow. Good on you, Matthew. Right on. I'm curious, what, what made you want to be an American? I mean, after all, the British, it's not that big of a leap in culture compared to America, as opposed to being an immigrant from Vietnam or, or some other nation that has very different culture and values. I'm kind of curious what made you go for that. Um, so to, to the broader point here, I think, is that as a nation, when we engage with these other nations, especially for in cases where they don't, they don't share the same values as us, we have to be able to win in the battle of ideas before we start trying to win the battle of guns of military. We, and this is the part about, again, Reagan, another interesting character, a guy that I wasn't that big of a fan of, but his idea of America as a shining city on a hill, I think is a really wonderful idea. If we can live that out. But the point being is, is that if America has these values and we live those values, especially from my perspective, if they are our founding values of equal rights and in inalienable or individual rights, which is really what makes America special. If we are able to live those values and and let our actions serve as an example to the rest of the world. We can then win the battle of ideas. But when we go out with a military, and again, I, I strongly support the military for defense. But if we use our military as an offensive weapon to go around the world, kicking up dirt and causing problems and, and, and doing nation building and propping up dictators and puppet governments, if we do that, we lose the battle of ideas and our stature in the world goes down and we are no longer a shining city on a hill. The light begins to dim. And that's, that's why the reputation of America has been so tarnished by all of this. And for a number of other reasons, Matthew Brannigan says, I did it for love. However, I'm now divorced. LOL. Well, good on you. Um, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, again, I'm, I won't comment on your marriage, uh, but if, if that's what it took for you to come to the United States and become an American, welcome, my friend. Welcome, brother. Glad to have you here. And I mean that. Pete Neal says, not to take a detour, but yes, welcome, Matthew. <laughs> Matthew says, Poway is a great place to live. If you think it's, if you think it's expensive, try living in London. Yeah, I've heard London is insane. Um, is London more expensive than San Francisco? It might be, I think, from some of the information I've read. I've never been to, to London. I've never been to the British Isles. I'm going to go to Ireland, which is all part of my ancestral research. And I was all ready to go. And then COVID hit and threw everything sideways. So I'm now trying to reorganize myself. But definitely while I'm there, I want to go visit England and take in all the rich history there. Good on you, Matthew. Um, 
Now, there is one other thing I want to say on this whole Afghanistan thing. And, oh, my God, it's 54 minutes and I still have more I want to get into. Um, there is one other approach. And, again, this is not an approach that I necessarily agree with when it comes to how the United States should have responded to Afghanistan. It's not one that I agree with, but I think it has more logic then this middling nation building kind of fighting an unwinnable war with one arm tied behind our back kind of an approach that the United States has been in for like over 20 years. And that is, is that, and like I said, if, if we ever get punched, we need to punch back with more force. It can't be proportional. It has to be disproportional. But there is an argument to be made that if you're going to punch back, Make it massively disproportional. I mean, to I mean, if, if the objective is, and again, I don't necessarily support this, but I want to just lay out the logic for it. If the objective is to transform the other nation into a, you know, not necessarily a colony of America, but if you want to create another nation that supports Western values, that supports democracy and women's rights and, and inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, if you want to create a nation that does that, you can't just sort of fit it in and, and get a square peg in a round hole like we tried to do in Afghanistan. You have to actually go in and just literally decimate the country bring it to its knees, and then rebuild all of its institutions. And it's not going to take 20 years to do it. It's going to take 50 years or 100 years, kind of like what America did in Japan and in Germany. Again, I'm not advocating this, but I'm saying it would have been if, if, if they came up and said, our objective is to, to truly transform these nations. When you have such a massive philosophical difference, the only way you can actually do that is to completely obliterate their their culture, their philosophy. Again, I don't support this. I'm just saying there's a there's like there's a certain level of logic to it, depending on what your ultimate end game is on this. Um, but you know, again, that would have been the wrong approach. I mean, didn't General MacArthur didn't he warn us of a war in Asia? I think he did. Just a, it's an unwinnable place to go. And especially somewhere like Afghanistan is landlocked. Um, your Navy has limited capabilities there. It's just, it just was a disaster. Um, I, you know, I supported when they sent in special ops to go get Osama bin Laden. Um, that made sense. I wish it wouldn't have been 10 years later. Um, limited airstrikes just to respond to 9-11 kind of made sense too. But then if you really look back at it and you look at Osama bin Laden's manifesto, why did they attack us on 9-11? Well, they attacked us because we were over there. They attacked you know, the USS Cole, which was in a Yemen port. They attacked some of our embassies in, Afga in Africa. They attacked the World Trade Center in 1993. as a response to us being over there. Now, there's a lot more to the story than that. There's a lot more historical conflict, not involving America at all, but involving the groups that have existed in those areas for centuries. But us being the world police doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. 
And now, I mean, back then you figure our presence there was largely driven because of oil. But we don't have to do that anywhere to the same degree as we did then because we've got other forms of energy. And I talk about our homes, solar panels of our own uh, power generating plant on our roof that powers our house, powers this podcast, powers our two cars. We're always going to have oil. And granted, America's is 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 pulling more oil out of our domestic um uh more oil domestically than we ever have. It seems like when Reagan said that the irrationality of the politics of the Middle East makes it not really a friendly place for us to be. That makes a lot of sense to me. And so, um what do you think? I welcome your thoughts and comments on social media. Um, welcome your thoughts and comments here on the live stream. Type them in on YouTube and Facebook. I'll read them on the air. Um, but yeah, you can re- you can reach out um, to my Facebook page, John Riley Project, on Facebook, or the John Riley Project Insiders Group, um, which is a group of I don't know, like forty or so, like kind of more hardcore fans of the podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about the Insiders Group and some of the commentary I got recently. But I welcome your thoughts on social media. Uh, Pete Neal says, being the world's police is a good ideal, but should be restricted to maintaining international waters and airspace. Okay, I, I can, I, I buy you on that, Pete. It sounds good. And, you know, just kind of, how should I say this? Allowing free trade to be conducted freely makes sense. You know, keeping waterways and airspace open so people can freely navigate, can freely move, can freely exercise their inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And oh, by the way, those rights aren't just for Americans. Those rights are for everybody. Everybody has a right to their own life. But Being a world's police, meaning that we have to go in and fight every civil war and rebuild every nation and partner with one group against another group. And at some point, you just got to say the hell with all this. It's a waste of time, waste of money, waste of energy. And it's frankly in direct conflict of what America is supposed to represent. So maybe this is going to be a turning point. That we're going to actually, Pete, learn the lesson that we failed to learn from Vietnam. And I hope it is. Pete Neal says, if you read that as supportive of the U.S. Navy, yes, I am biased. Yeah, that's what the Navy does, right? They keep the waterways open. All the international trade, um, the freeways of the waterways, right? They keep them open and keep allow free trade to be conducted. That makes sense to me. That's actually preserving America's interests there, too. But doing it in a way that's principled and based on on freedom. Not just for us, but for everyone. There's there's logic in that. But fighting these ground wars is just silly. Um, Matthew Brannigan says Afghanistan is a tragedy. Just look at those old photos of smiling, mini skirted university educated women from the 70s and how women look now sent home from school to be no more than a slave. Right. And I think that was the same era when we saw some of that Western influence in Tehran back in the 70s, you know, um, when they had the Shah and they were embracing Western values. 
again, we, we would love to remake all these nations in our own image as though we are God, right? Making man in our own image. But you can't force those ideals on other nations. We have to lead by example. We have to be principled. We have to stand up for what we believe in. And we have to not just talk the talk. We have to walk the walk. And the more we do that, the more we will be influential to people all around the world. And the more people are going to want to jump on our bandwagon. But when we look like hypocrites, when we don't live our values, then people just say, eh, they don't like us anymore. I mean, because right, who likes a hypocrite? They don't. So it's something. Um, Matt Brannigan says, spot on, Peter. Yeah, the U.S. Navy. So, okay, so we're at six viewers, um, only one like. If you like this, give us a thumbs up. You know, I'm not really begging for likes, but it helps the algorithm. You know, the more people that like the episode, the more people that view the episode, the more we kind of pop up on people's YouTube streams as a recommended video or in Facebook. So, okay, I I do want to get into a couple more things. And I want to talk briefly about this idea of personal independence um, because there is a, there is a, like a link with Afghanistan and I, this is important. This is something that I'm kind of really going deep on, on myself. And I'm also going to get into a couple of other things about um, some follow-up on the, our topics from the previous podcast. We might go maybe another 15, 20 minutes. So, you know, I always talk about how this podcast is all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I really believe in that. And I think a lot of my content is consistent with that. But this notion of independence, you would think naturally is a good fit, right? And and here I want to talk about personal independence. But what I find is interesting when you see and hear the reactions to the conflict in Afghanistan, particularly this exit, this withdrawal, I really wonder how critically people are looking at this from an independent perspective, because so often we we find the Trump supporters are are bagging on Biden for doing what Trump was going to try to do before that never got done. Um, You've got Biden supporters that are blaming Bush and blaming, you know, you've got all everyone sees it. Not everyone, but many people see it through a partisan lens. If they're a Democrat, they're blaming Republicans and praising the Democrat. And vice versa. If they're a Republican, they're bagging on the Democrats and praising the Republicans. Um, and it makes me wonder how are people really thinking for themselves? Are people really looking at this objectively? Are they really looking at it independently? Now, I'm, I'm no party preference. And I, I take great pride in that uh, because – I want to be I want to think through independently. I don't want to be like a tribe member where it's kind of group think. And I, again, I'm not saying every Republican or Democrat is like this. I mean, people get in these political parties for various reasons. I mean, they really should only exist to help elect candidates. That's their main goal. But there is a lot of group think out there. You know, it's almost like you go on social media and it's like whatever the talking points of the day are. That's what you see people talking about. And it's incredible sometimes. It makes me wonder how well people are really thinking things through. And that's why I want to talk about personal independence. And when I say that, I, I don't mean personal independence like, you know, a man is an island, right? That you're independent and you're, uh, uh, you, you exist independently. That's not 
exactly what I mean here. And I don't really mean just simply being an individual, although I support individual rights. I talk a lot about that. But it's really this notion of independence of thought. Um, thinking for yourself, assessing reality yourself rather than seeing the world through the lens of other people. Like in this case, you know, sort of repeating the talking points that you heard from Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson or whomever happens to be the spokesperson for your particular point of view. Um, you know, and, and I, I'm often challenged with this as well because this goes to the whole point of how some people will say things or do things because they're concerned with what other people might think. Um, they're always worried about what other people think of them rather than doing what they think should be in their own best interests. They want, some people will say things, you know, in a podcast, in an interview, maybe in social media, maybe at a, at a party. They'll say things that people want to hear because they know that'll make them more, more liked or they'll fit in more. Um, maybe they'll say things to garner influence. You'll see this politically where people will say the right things in order to get the right supporters or say certain things in order to win certain favors from those in power. Um, some people are concerned about doing what they think is the right thing, not the right thing independently based on its own merit, but the right thing in terms of what other people might think. I see a lot of that in the world today. And, you know, I, I'll admit that I'm influenced by that as well. It's hard to escape that. It's baked into our culture in many ways. I mean, I, I think about, you know, I started my own business and one of the things I talked about when I, at least I talked to myself about it, I mentioned it a few times to others, is that I wanted to be able to point to something and said, I built that. <laughs> this goes back to the whole Obama speech, uh, you did not build that, which I hate that speech that he made. I know it's a Warren, uh, Elizabeth Warren topic as well. Yeah, when you build a company, of course, there are other people involved, employees and customers and suppliers. But, you know, they all get paid. <laughs> they all get what they need in transactional win-win outcomes along the way. But leaders deservedly deserve credit for the accomplishments of their leadership. I wanted to be one of those guys. That was one of the reasons I started my own business. But I realize now, going back on it, it was because I wanted to point to something to say I built that, not to take pride in it for myself, but to demonstrate to other people that I was of worth, that I was of value. And I realized that that was the wrong approach. It took me a while to finally really understand that at a deep level. It took a lot of self-introspection to get there. Um, a couple more comments here on the live stream. <laughs> Going back to our previous discussion, Pete Neal says, Hey, Matthew, your birth country, my ancestry, started that concept till the French got in the way. Um, Matt says, You've always had a love-hate relationship with France, our nearest neighbor. Um, the English and the French kind of having their own little conversation here. Matt Brandigan says, ideological purity seems to be a serious problem these days. Um, 
you know, in many ways, ideological purity is good because that means people are standing up for their own principles. Now, granted, you got to know when you're going to win and when you're going to lose. The problem I have is when people stand for ideological purity, but then violate their own principles. Now, granted, I'm sure I've done that at times in my past. Um, but I have friends of mine that we believe very different things when it comes to society and culture, politics. But we're still friends because we can get beyond it. It's hard to do for some people. Um, but a lot of ways, I, I respect those that are ideologically pure. I've, I've commented where I don't support AOC, but I respect her. I like her strategy of how she goes about her business, um, how she uses social media, how she gets her message out, how she rallies people, how she knows how to push the right buttons. I don't agree with her philosophy at all, but I respect her. Same with Bernie Sanders. I don't agree with him barely at all. I mean, Bernie, I'm sure, is supportive of ending the Afghanistan war. But um, Bernie is uh, someone that I philosophically am greatly at odds, but I respect him. I respect him for his purity. So it's an interesting topic. Uh, people are scared of getting canceled. Yeah, there's, that's a lot of it. And that's what I meant by this is this political independence. People are scared of being canceled. People are afraid to speak out because they're worried what other people might think. And so they say something different that they, they say what they think people want to hear or they change themselves. They, they, they adjust their values to be more uh, in line with what other people think. And in many ways, I think that's a huge problem. Um, I mean, like when it comes to the, like the Afghanistan conflict, I mean, there are people that I don't think are thinking for themselves when they comment on these things. They're just spouting talking points. It's predictable. It's almost like with COVID. We can see it with COVID. Um, the talking points that some people share are almost like programmed. I mean, you could predict what people are going to say. Now, granted, what people are going to say may be based on sound science and it may be logical, but it makes you wonder, are they really thinking independently or are they just spouting off what they've already heard from someone else? Um, it's, a, it's an interesting topic. And, you know, here I'm going to make a comment here. Personal independence is about pursuing your happiness and ultimately yourself. That's what personal independence is about, independent of what others might think. I mean, it's why I have these shirts. And if you're watching on the video, these are my personal Pursue Happiness shirts. And by the way, I just want to put this out there. Um, and I said I'd have a giveaway. If you want one of these shirts, this Pursue Happiness shirt, on the back, it's got the John Riley Project logo. I'll give you. I got some right here, right off to the side. I got sizes L and XL. If you want one of them, email me to john at johnreillyproject.com and tell me if you want a large or an extra large. If you're in town here in Poway or anywhere in San Diego County, let me know and let's find a time to meet. I'd love to meet you. If you're far away, give me your address and I'll mail it to you. No charge. Um, personal independence is about pursuing your happiness 
independent of what other people might think. And I think it's a very powerful concept. I mean, it's part of the reason I do this podcast. Um, I enjoy doing this podcast. I enjoy meeting people in this podcast. I enjoy getting up on my soapbox and sharing my values in this podcast. But I know that doing this podcast is a challenge. And I challenge myself to prepare and organize my thoughts. But I challenge myself to come out and actually take a stand and to say what I believe. And in many cases, to be controversial, not for controversy's sake, but I'm willing to go right up to the edge and sometimes to go over the edge. And I do that on purpose to challenge myself so that I'm actually speaking about what I really believe in, as opposed to being careful and saying what I think you want to hear. So this is almost like a workout for me. It's to, it's to challenge myself to live my own values and to challenge myself to say, am I really as independent as I think I am? And I'm glad I do this for that reason. Um, but you got to be careful. You got to pick and choose your moments, of course. Um, but it, it, it's, to me, this is just a fascinating topic. I mean, if, if you are listening on the audio only podcasts, you may have noticed that I've updated my bumper music before and after the podcast begins. And one of the phrases I talk about is to trigger your independence. And this goes to this idea of personal independence. It's an idea that I'm very fascinated with, and I really want to flesh out more and build some more content around it, because I think there's a lot of value in here. Because independence goes in a lot of ways, not just independence of thought, which I think is the main point of it, but it's also independence of... Um, you know, politically, I mean, how many people are hung up in these two terrible parties? Political independence, I think, is powerful. And I think we need more people that are independent. And frankly, independence is all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's consistent with what America is supposed to be about. So and this is a topic I'm going to explore. I'm going to continue to challenge myself. You know, a lot of times I'm doing it now. It's like when I say certain things or I do certain things. I, have, I try to have self-awareness and I'll ask myself, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Was that really something that was rational? Was something that I really wanted to say or, or do that was based on what I truly believe? Or was I doing or saying certain things to gain favor to, um, or, or was I saying or doing things just to get along, to be part of the crowd, to try to attract other people uh, in a way that is not authentic. I think about that a lot lately. And I, and to me, this is important and it's, it's a, a self-improvement topic, but it's also a philosophical point that finds its way into this podcast. that I think is, is pretty interesting. So anyways, if you want one of these shirts, um, pursue happiness, they are long sleeve. Man, this will be good for the fall. Good for Halloween, Halloween colors. They're long sleeve, heavyweight cotton t-shirts. Send me an email to john at johnreillyproject.com and I'll get you one of these shirts. I only have size L and XL, uh, but let me know. And while supplies last, right? Okay, uh, a couple more comments here on the live stream. 
Um, Matthew Brand. Oh, Pete Neal says, so you are in favor of Newman. I assume you mean Newsom. Newsom recall strictly because he went too far with the COVID reaction. And I'm going to get to that in a minute here, Pete. Uh, Matthew Brannigan says, I meant in the way that these days you have to agree with everything your tribe agrees with, else you get cast out. Yeah, this is you're right on target, Matthew. That's what I'm talking about. Is that there is this tribal, this tribal angle that's frankly dangerous, and it's um, it it thwarts independent thought, and it's yeah, I, I think it's very dangerous. You know, if if people really supported the concept of diversity, not just of skin color, but by diversity of thought, we would understand that people have different thoughts and opinions, and we can talk things out. And we don't have to get canceled just because we think a certain way. But that's what's going on right now. And it's, it's, it can be ugly if it gets pursued too far. Matthew Brannigan says, it's a problem on the left and the right. 100% agree. Pete Neal says, or more importantly, not saying things in the moment. Yeah. Well, again, you, you, have, to, you have to know what's going on in the world around you. You don't want to necessarily poke the bear when you when it is unnecessary, you don't want to provoke a fight. Um, but when you are in a situation, and this I would encourage of others, and I'm definitely encouraging it of myself. When you are in a situation where you feel like you are compromising or watering down what you say, you should understand. You should be aware that you're doing it, and then you should ask yourself why. And if it's to legitimately avoid a fight or avoid violence, then by all means, you know, do that. But if you are compromising your own principles in a way that makes you kind of unauthentic, that makes you fake, then that's a problem. And I think that's something that we need to address independently, looking within ourselves to really challenge ourselves to have a backbone to not only stand up for what we believe, but to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. So again, it's an interesting topic, but I don't want to go too deep. It's kind of getting a little bit too kind of philosophical, but it, it, I, see, I see parallels with Afghanistan withdrawal and the commentary and definitely with COVID. Okay. So just a few final thoughts here, just to wrap up this podcast episode. Um, and one of them, Pete, was about the recall of Gavin Newsom. Um, and, you know, I posted that in the John Riley Project Insiders Group. Uh, I, you know, I made these clips. And I've been working on, actually, this is one of the things I'm doing now that I'm only doing one podcast a week, is I'm taking this big, in this case, it'll be like a 90-minute video, and breaking them down into little three-minute, four-minute segments that are a little more digestible, especially for people that are new to the podcast. And, you know, I want to give them something that's easily consumed. Well, I did one of them from my last podcast on the Gavin Newsom recall. And, you know, I got some pushback from some some people in the insiders group, people that are really good friends of mine, um, one of which said that, uh, um, you know, whether or not you want to recall or not recall, they just thought a recall process in general was not a good idea unless it was something so outrageous that it was a, a violation of the law or some just 
incredibly unethical act. And only in those cases would even the idea of a recall election be appropriate, independent of how if you vote yes or no. And I try to explain. I said to me, and I'll, this goes to your point, Pete. Um, to me, what Gavin Newsom did in the response to COVID, a lot of things he did were very good. He used his bully pulpit to get his message out, to encourage people to socially distance, to encourage people to wear masks, to practice business safely, and then certainly um, to get a vaccine. And I think that's great. I think that's appropriate. But then he went too far. <laughs> he, he went too far because he, as a, a government official, he set rules that shut down certain kinds of businesses and declared certain businesses as essential and other businesses as non-essential, shutting down the non-essential ones. Well, I'm sorry. If, if you're the owner of one of those non-essential businesses, that business is essential to their life. That business is critical for them. It's their life's work. And if this is a nation that's built on liberty, then we should give those people the liberty to continue to manage their business. If, if you can go to Home Depot and practice business safely, why can't you go to another business and practice business safely? It's the same idea. So... I had some interesting conversation with some of my friends in the John Riley Project Insiders Group. Again, I welcome you to join us there. We have some more detailed discussion. Another friend of mine agreed with me that what Newsom did was over the line, but felt that there was no suitable replacement. So therefore, we needed to keep the bad guy in office because everyone else was worse. Now, I see that logic, too. Um, but at the same time... Um, now, granted, was everyone worse? Probably not. Um, of the leading candidates, was everyone worse? You know, they were all varying ratios of mixed bags, of mixtures of good and bad. Um, but even if Newsom is recalled and someone like Larry Elder is put into place or San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner. Maybe he wins. He won't. It's going to be Elder or Newsom will survive the recall. And frankly, I think Newsom's going to survive anyways. But even if Larry Elder got in, he'd only serve for like a year and then there would be another election and he would have limits on his power because there's a balance of power. There's a legislature and a governorship. He can't act as dictator. Now, granted, Larry Elder is going around in his campaign saying he was going to issue all these emergency actions to give him more power. And I know Newsom's done some of that as well. But you can't not remove someone because they did, even when they've done something wrong, they, people need to be held accountable. And again, there is even some logic to say and this I agree with as well, that recall elections are fine because it always holds politicians accountable. It keeps them on their toes. It, it makes them nervous and they should be nervous. 
And, you know, they may end up surviving the recall, which is fine. And frankly, isn't this democracy? It's funny how some of the people that are big fighters of democracy oppose the recall, even though it's a democratic vote that's going to recall them or not. Now, granted, the flaw is that the, if he is recalled, the winner of it may only have 15, 20 percent of the vote. Um, but that could have been resolved if we had ranked choice voting to decide on who the winner would be. But we haven't gotten there yet. Um, Pete Neal says, yeah, I think he went too far, but not to the extent of losing his job. Well, maybe we can agree he went too far to the extent of being up for recall. Then we can vote whether or not he stays or goes. But he did cross a line, and I think that line makes him eligible to be put on a ballot for recall. Maybe we can agree on that. Matthew Grant Brannigan says, yes, agreed. Voting no, but might want to be rid of him at the general election. So I voted yes on the recall. Um, it was hard to figure out who to vote for to replace him. I voted for a person that you've probably never, never heard of who um, is an elected leader in California today. He's a supervisor in Riverside County. He's the one that's probably most aligned with my particular point of view, but although not perfectly, um, but I, I voted for him. Same as Jeff Hewitt. Um, but again, I think Newsom's going to survive. That's my opinion. Now, when the, he's going to come up again in November of 2022, but I think what's going to happen is, is whoever gets the most votes in this recall is going to be the leading candidate for the nomination for the 2022 governor election, which may end up being Larry Elder again. Or if he can pull a rabbit out of his hat, San Diego, former San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner. We'll see. Okay. Um, but yeah, I filled out my ballot. I took it down to Postal Annex here in Poway. Um, and they had, once again, they had representatives from the San Diego Registrar of Voters there inside the Postal Annex, which is right next to the Target here in Poway. Um, speaking of that, have you seen that new Amazon Fresh that's being built and they're making great progress with that. I, I'm looking forward to that. When that, I mean, we did a whole podcast about the automated grocery store situation. Um, when that is done, I'm going to go in and I'll make a video while I, I, in that store just so we can all check it out and, and see what it's all about. I posted about it um, here in one of our local Poway Facebook groups and got a lot of interesting response. Um, some people that love the idea, some people that really don't like the idea of an automated grocery store because they want to protect jobs. Never mind the fact that we've got millions of jobs that are unfilled right now. Um, but I, I'm very anxious to see, like, again, I love progress. I like technology. I like innovation. And we're bringing it to an industry that, you know, roughly speaking, hasn't experienced a tremendous amount of innovation. This is going to be a huge leap, hopefully forward. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, Matt Brannigan says, is it confirmed as an Amazon Fresh? I don't think it's officially confirmed, but if you look at the way that they're setting up the facade, there's like an awning, like a, like a little uh, patio cover, and there's one section where it's painted in green that looks exactly like the other Amazon Fresh stores, particularly the automated stores. So this is all setting up to be that. And I think the reason that we haven't been officially told this yet further confirms 
that's going to be one of these new, innovative, revolutionary grocery stores. And I think it's cool. I'm really looking forward to it. Matt says they have one at my hometown in, in Ailing, London. The, an Amazon Fresh, one of the automated ones. Cool. I think it's great. Okay. Um, just uh, one other thing. I, I had a great uh, lunch yesterday with one of our podcast uh, um, listeners. Um, and we had a great lunch at Smoking Jay's Barbecue in, uh, in Poway. It was wonderful. So, again, I love getting together with people in the podcast audience. That's a lot of fun. That's part of the fun of building this project. I get to meet so many interesting people um, like you, Pete. Pete, got to know him. He was my, my guest on episode number three of this podcast. And today is episode number 250. We're a quarter of a way to 1,000, which is exciting. Um, so, okay, so the one in, um, is it Ealing or Elling, London? Uh, that was the first one in the UK. That's awesome. Um, one other comment I just want to throw out there is more on this Poway firefighters thing. We're seeing a lot more conversation here locally about it. Now the chief, the fire chief is resigning. Um, John Canavan is his name. I've known him for a long time. John and I uh, managed Little League together at Poway National Little League, and he was a very successful coach. Um, he won a lot of championships there, and his son was a very, very good player back in the day. Um, and I wish him and his family nothing but success. Now, the people that are shrieking about this so-called crisis um, amongst the Poway firefighters, well, this is the fire chief resigning this is they, I mean, they should have a replacement in mind already, a succession path. You know, they should be building a bench. Right. For this sort of thing. Um, but again, you know, it's interesting because I think this is during the contract negotiation time. And now their contract negotiations being spun out in the public forum. Um I made a comment to this before, a significant percentage, like over 80 percent of the firefighters in Poway have a total compensation package exceeding $150,000 a year. Now, do they deserve it? Of course they do. They're getting paid that. That by definition, definition means they deserve it. But it's not like they're getting by on food stamps. You know, it's not like they are, you know, begging for money. Um, and people are outraged by this whole situation that they're being underpaid. Um, but to the point that they actually want to like go and donate food <laughs> to help them, like as though they were homeless or something. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Um, we can have a discussion about whether or not they deserve more money. That's something that the Poway City Council can decide. They can negotiate. And I'm sure they're doing that right now. And if our city is not competitive with other cities in our region, then yeah, they're going to have to make an adjustment. And if they have to bring up the payroll, the fire department, they're going to have to find a pay go way to reduce spending elsewhere. And that's hard. That's difficult, but they're going to have to make those tough decisions. Um, and when you talk about firefighters, usually people are just immediately supportive of firefighters, no matter what, almost like teachers. And especially in our hometown of Poway, where firefighters are so widely respected and such a necessary part of our community because of what we went through here in Poway in 2003 and 2007. But sometimes I just wonder if, if this gets too emotional, not as objective as it should be. And 
I'm hopeful that this will get straightened out. But I don't think it's the crisis that some people are trying to make it out to be. Do we have some openings? Yeah. But you know what? There's a lot of openings for jobs all around the United States right now. The whole job market is kind of erratic, volatile. It's going to settle down at some point, especially depending on what governments decides to do with you know, eviction moratoriums and, and enhanced unemployment packages and everything else. It'll eventually settle down. But these are things they can work through. And you know, normally when a local fire department has openings, there's usually, in most cases, there's never a shortage of people applying because those are coveted jobs. They pay well. As I just said, when you look at their salary, their overtime, their so-called other pay, their benefits, their retirement, it's over 150 grand a year. It's pretty good, especially if you don't have a college degree. You know, they're worth it. Obviously, they're getting it. That means they're worth it by definition. But um, I don't know if it's to the point of this being a crisis. It's just something that they've got to work through to fill the open spots. And they may need to make some adjustments in pay so they aren't losing quality employees to nearby cities that are paying more. We'll see how it sorts out. I'll, I'll keep an eye on this topic. Okay, and then finally, actually a couple more comments here. Matthew says it's Ealing. So Ealing, London is where you're from. And that's where they had the automated Amazon Fresh. That's great. Um, Pete Neal says, Matthew, my ancestry goes back to Warrington. Just an FYI. My cousin goes there. It's very weird. Feels like you were shoplifting already, apparently. Um, so an interesting conversation going on here. And Pete Neal says, and this is my final point, he says, I hope to crash in the Zoomcast on Friday. Will it be Friday? Yes. So I will do a podcast episode on Friday. It'll be more like a like a hangout, like a happy hour. I don't know what time it's going to be yet. It, it won't be at two. It might be a little later in the day. And we'll just make it kind of a fun thing. Um, and I will uh, go into f on Facebook to John Riley Project and also in the Insiders Group. I'll have information there. And if you want to be involved in that, send me an email. And that what we're going to do is we're just going to have a fun conversation. And we're all going to pop up on Windows here in the live stream. And you know, I'll try to keep it organized so we aren't all talking on top of each other. Um, but we'll have some topics in mind and we'll go around the room and get everyone's thoughts and opinions. And maybe there's some new topics people might want to bring forward. We'll talk about those and we'll have some fun with this. And it'll be like a big Brady Bunch matrix, like a big Zoom call matrix. I'm I'm not sure if I'm going to do it in Zoom or if I'll do it in my StreamYard, which is what I use here now. But I want to experiment with this because I think it'll be fun to getting the community involved. So I'll have some news about that probably in the next 24 hours. So check out the John Riley Project Facebook group for information, and we'll, we'll take it from there. Okay. Um, wow. An hour and 37-minute long podcast. Um, thanks again for joining us. We we really broke down the whole Afghanistan war and the withdrawal and foreign policy. We talked a little bit about personal independence, which is a topic I want to explore more. I kind of quick kicked it here in this podcast, but I wanted to put it on the table because there is a relationship to how people are reacting to COVID and Afghanistan war withdrawal, where sometimes I question how independently people are really thinking. Um and then, we, yeah, we wrapped up a couple of little local topics and some follow-up on our last podcast. But again, thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. If you like what we're doing, 
you know, give us a thumbs up on Facebook, on YouTube. Uh, that always helps with the algorithm and that helps us, you know, broaden our audience. And if you really like what we're doing, uh, you know, feel free to leave a review um, on the podcast platform you happen to listen on. So until our next episode, which will be on Friday, um, we'll see you then. This is John Riley. Have a great day. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog or get more information please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.